Hello and welcome to The Things That Make Us, a podcast about people and the objects that have shaped them. My name is Zoe Laughlin and each week I invite a guest to pick five things that have inspired, delighted, provoked or influenced them. We then talk about these things at a time and place of their choosing, with as many of the items present as possible. Photographs of all the things selected by each guest can be found at thethingsthatmakeus.com. In this episode, I meet Dame Professor Uta Frith. A fellow of the Royal Society, Uta is one of the most highly regarded and decorated psychologists of her generation. Her groundbreaking research into autism and dyslexia underpins much of our contemporary understanding of these conditions and has influenced educators and researchers around the world. Uta invited me to her home to hear about the things that have made her and have lunch with her and her husband Chris. Now, most embarrassingly, it transpires that my phone was not on silent and a text message interrupts the interview. I wanted to let you know as I decided not to edit this balls up out uh, because it becomes relevant at the end. struck by actually the materiality of your home it's a fantastic structure <laughs> and it's full of wood and sounds of wood and smells of wood fabrics yeah, and a lot of things a lot of possessions sometimes think this is you know getting too much but I, I, I love objects I, I do you know uh, collect things and I collect a lot of things not particularly systematically but it does fill up the house it must have been quite tricky to pick five things then. It was incredibly tricky. I think it's, it's a fairly random selection in the end, but, but I love all the objects. So what is your first thing? So the first thing I have in my hand here is a very ancient thing. It might well be the most ancient thing I have in the house. It's a, a Stone Age flint knife. And it's completely smooth on one side, and it has this sort of characteristic flaked off patterns on the other side. And the sides are very sharp still. Of course, they are somewhat ragged. And of course, you know, having been in the earth in somewhere in, in Sussex, I believe, for a few thousand years, um, it, it is marvelous that, that, that it's still found. So I marvel at it um, because of the, the beautiful feel of it. Um, it also has a very nice symmetrical shape. It's greyish. It is, it is a flint. I did buy it at, at an auction at Sotheby's a very, very long time ago. So they had a little box that a collector had put together arrowheads and, and Stone Age tools and things, and they were all um, found in the in the in southern England, so I, I imagine that you know it could be contemporary to Stonehenge. Who knows? It could of course still still be from the Bronze Age when people um, were able to make tools from bronze. They would still probably continue to use these wonderful stone tools, these knives that that could have been used to make some garment or um, you know cut some fruit or some meat. So. I, I'm, I'm really interested, not just as an object, but also as a, a s sign of the um, 
<laughs> say that bit again. That was me. How awful. I'm going to turn my phone off. <laughs> Terrible. Nice. Having me said I think that's f- fun. But so are you saying this sort of represents a bigger idea or something <clears throat> for you? Of, of human evolution. Um, how uh, come that, you know, our mind can, can even think of fashioning uh, tools and keeping them and using them in this refined way? I think that's, uh, that, that tells us a, a, a great deal. And of course, the whole history of, of human beings over millennia is one by, which can be traced by, uh, by objects mostly. What is so special about them? That is different from animals. You know, we don't know a lot about tool-using animals, but my God, they're primitive tools compared to this kind of thing. They're, they're, they're throwaway kind of tools uh, that animals might use, you know, stone to crush a nut, that kind of thing, and then another stone to crush another nut. But this kind of thing would have been kept, it would have been sharpened, and it would have been transmitted over generations, so that that's the difference in, in in humans. And one of the one of the amazing things, also that happened in in tools. It went all about you know cutting and doing things with with stones or with, with food. But here is another tool which I'm very very fond of, and I have collected a number of abacuses, um, which I find very decorative. But I um, think they are an incredible sign making making visual I think what the human mind can do to organize knowledge to organize in this case numbers to do something totally abstract and having just a sort of few symbolic ways of counting you know you you, you know how to uh, get to the tens and then carry one and and uh, you know go to the bigger numbers in very very simple ways so this abacus and I, I absolutely love it was actually a, this one was the first one I think I bought in Russia actually it was Soviet Union it was 1971 I believe and I was allowed to travel there it was absolutely fantastic um, and I these things were in actual use in the shops at the time and people used them incredibly efficiently but of course children would also be given these uh, already before school I think to get familiar with them and they would learn to use them. So do you Um, think that there's a difference I mean between counting and becoming familiar with numbers physically as opposed to through symbols and Yes, we have a sense of numbers, and, and even animals have that sense of numbers. But this puts it onto a different plane. You can really have a sense of large numbers, which we don't actually have. We can sort of imagine few and many, but when we come to the bigger numbers, it's hopeless. We're not really made to do that. But these little tools allow us to keep track, even of the big numbers, and also to multiply. Ah, that is so amazingly useful. So I, I love these as symbols again of of um, ingenuity, and possibly possibly giving some insight into how actually the brain might represent numbers. Once you've learned to use this with the concrete beads, you can do it mentally. And this is fascinating because I saw a video of some children who were so practiced with the abacus that when they were given very 
complex math problems, they still used it mentally. You could see them moving their fingers. You could see them actually very quickly pretending, as it were, to, to use the abacus. So this helped them to solve the problems. That's I think that's very interesting. It's, yeah, really interesting because actually tools at large, I believe, have some role like that, that in learning to use tools, manipulate tools, and in that respect, make things. Actually, what you're also doing is enhancing your ability to imagine the making of things that you've yet to make because you have an experience that you can then advance your conceptual world with as well. Very, very true. I, I agree with that. I agree with that. It's, it's not only we, we are learning from the past by um, imagining a slightly different future mm. uh, and, and making constant improvements, which is very, very interesting. So talking about culture and tools, things like that, I'm, I'm now talking about books. So thing number two <laughs> is books. Thing number two, books. And I have, of course, only one book, but I, I, I love books as objects. I love books because, um, you know, you can feel the paper, you can smell it, you can, you know, get a sense of, um, well, again, of, of um, centuries of, of transmission of knowledge. And, well, first of all, there, there's, there's the alphabet, which was our tool, just like in the abacus, of making something very abstract visible. So in this case, in the case of the alphabet, it's speech, speech sounds. And that, that was a remarkable invention, again, about, well, maybe 3000 BC, maybe at the time that stone tool was being used. And since then, there's been an incredibly rapid, rapid rise of culture and civilization. So knowledge really could be transmitted if once you can write it down, once you can refer to it. Um, books as we know them, of course, haven't been around that long, maybe only about 2000 years, if that. We had scrolls, we had stone tablets, all sorts of other things. But I, I love books. Now, shall I tell you something about this particular book, why I choose it? It's actually a little book that was made by Mrs. Henry Head, the wife of a very famous neurologist. And she has collected records of the weather for every day in the year from collected letters and diaries. So for every day in the year, you can see something about the weather. It was published in, in, what, in what 1917. Year? Right, so 1917. It's, in the, it's the weather of 1916? No, it's the weather here, for example. Do you want to look up 1st of July, which is our day today? Yes, first. Oh, so it could be any day in history where she has found I a, see, a, I see, a, yeah. a written uh, diary or letters or something. So this is Walpole. She found um, an entry. As in the first prime minister. As in the first prime minister in 1789. And he says, the weather indeed tolerates all winter diversions and so on. But she also has an, an entry for 1st of July, July from 1890 by Mrs. Holland who I can see from the index, is a, a writer. And she says, it's so delicious here, though the roses have suffered from the heavy rain and boisterous south wind, but it all is still sunny and fresh as paradise. And when I look at our garden, I say, yeah, absolutely the same. The roses have suffered from the heavy rain and the wind, but it's still sunny. Well, I think it is quite fun to think that here was somebody who collected 
um, these extraordinary little accounts that are really of no, no consequence about the weather every day. She must have worked on this for a number of years, I imagine. She must have been so pleased. She must have said, oh, 22nd of February. I haven't, I haven't got anything for that yet. Well, you know, can I, can I find something? There's a wonderful art piece by a man called Christian Markley, which is a 24-hour clock. But what he's done is looked at all films ever made, you know, feature films, oh, yes. and he's taken oh. the snippets of a visual representation of time in it and placed it in well, a true chronology across the sense of his 24-hour film. So you'll get snippets from Brief Encounter where they're stood at a platform and there's a tr clock in the background oh. and it says 4.15. Oh. Well, he puts that oh, at 4.15. Then 4.16 he goes to a, a Western where something happens. Oh. And he manages to fill an entire 24-hour wow, period this with the time. Same it's idea. the same idea. Yeah. I love it. So this, to me, all, it was, is a work of art. I mean, it, in, in the modern sense, uh, a kind of um, performance. But it's also, it has science in it. It's a, a combination because, you know, the weather is, you know, observing the weather is, is a scientific pursuit. It is absolutely right. And putting it all together and collecting it, I can so imagine how enjoyable this actually was. You know, it's like doing an amazing big jigsaw. Thing number three. Thing number three, we come to um, a small selection of dolls. I love dolls. So I have here a little, a little doll, well, about uh, less than 10 centimeters that I played with as a, as a little child. And this, this doll was made from bits and pieces. It's a, it's a cloth stuffed little doll with a painted face. And I remember very well that I got this little doll and another one just like it. Um, as a Christmas present with, with the doll's house. And that was the beginning of an incredibly, you know, intense childhood activity for me. What I like about this is that, again, you can, you can make things out of practically nothing. It has lasted um, like 70 years. I'm 75 now, so I think it must be absolutely that old. And if you think it was made just out of very ephemeral things. It was made by a, a young woman who was was lodged in the house of my grandparents because they were bombed out. You know, it was it was a time after the war when people were very strongly crowded together and they had nothing. Of course, they had also nothing left, their own possessions. I can hardly imagine what that must have been like. And I, I sort of vaguely remember there were various people in the house very, very relieved that the war was over. And certainly a time of, of using absolutely everything you could use, like little bits of, I think, of an old stocking, um, probably of a little bit of, of wool for the hair, a little bit of black wool. A smidgen of ribbon or... A smidgen yeah. of ribbon, a tiny... And, and it, I played with this, you know, all the time. Now here is... a. An, another doll that I have which is also made from cloth and from wool. It is a knitted doll. It's very long and thin. It has a very uh, pointed uh, hat. So this doll was something that my own children played with. 
and that's something like 40 years ago when that started. It's in pretty good condition so that my grandchildren are now playing with it and it's a very beloved doll and I remember that it's so because it's long and thin and knitted they could always hold it when they went to sleep um, in a particular position. It was a very comforting, very nice doll and another interesting thing about it is that it was made by um, probably um, a, a, a schizophrenic patient. Um, my mother bought it in in uh, in a hospital, and it was you know she she deliberately bought it. She said you know this is this is absolutely marvelous. It's in itself very colorful, red and yellow, and very interesting. I said I would talk about a humple mum, which is a jumping jack, and again I'm thinking of this as um, an archetypal toy. It's, it's satisfying to see a, a cause and effect relationship. I, I think that's what's, what's so, such fun. You know, you pull a string and there the legs and arms jump into the air and you can never have enough of this cause and effect which we absolutely latch on to everywhere. I mean, this again, how our mind works and it's something to do with, with material things. So I, I love it. I, I think this is a, a, an interesting um, so the dolls kind of more, toy. So do dolls more broadly um, play a role in the, you know, the development of mind? Um, well, dolls are, are just everywhere. They are, of course, um, uh, some some of them are incredibly elaborate, uh, but they don't have to be. They can be so simple, like a wooden stick, um, because it's all in the imagination. And of course, it's it's a very human thing to be able to imagine, to be able to pretend. And children as young as you know under two years old, eighteen months old, are already grasp this idea that of pretense of make believe. And it's, it's very, very important in our uh, mental development in general. Um, we, we need to be able to understand the difference between, you know, the physical world, um, as it is, we have to interact with it, we have to, you know, have all these wonderful tools, shape them and do them, but uh, we can also um, have a, a different stance towards it. We know that these are real objects out there, but we can also pretend that they're something else and we can um, indulge in all sorts of um, imaginary scenarios. And again, I think that's incredibly important for the invention of things and for the inventiveness of human beings, but also for storytelling. So um, I think it's, um, it's, again, something that fascinates me as a, a human uh, characteristic and a very, very enjoyable one. So what's, what's your next thing? Ah, this is something much more adult at last, much more refined. It's a silver brooch. So this is probably the first object that I'm holding here of, of all this collection that's metal. And metal is of course, you know, an extraordinary thing for humans to have discovered and, and um, still one of the biggest mysteries, how on earth they latched onto actually finding it, smelting it down, using it. Uh, absolutely incredible. Now this brooch was a present for my husband. He designed it and commissioned my sister to make it. And my sister is a gold silversmith. So as a silversmith she made this little brooch. 
which is actually very, very complicated, if I have to describe it, because it represents a 2 by 2 by 2 factorial design. Now, why did my husband <laughs> do this? Well, he is actually a, ma a mathematician at heart, and the factorial design is what psychologists uh, like us use in order to um, get experiments properly controlled. To conduct experiments, you have to design in advance how you will compare groups so that to rule out all sorts of accidental uh, factors that you don't want to mess up your results. So when you do this design, um, you have, in this case, the factors shiny silver and textured silver. You have upper layer and lower layer, so this is slightly mm -hmm. raised. And you have a surface and no, nothing. So you have little, little squares that seem to be cut out. So the whole thing is 16 squares four squares in each quadrant, but in each quadrant one square is missing. So this would be an extremely complicated result if you obtained it in your experiment. But it looks nice. Yeah, it's beautiful. I'm very fond of it. Did you recognise what it was when it was presented to you, or did you have to have it oh, explained? Absolutely. Uh, I, I knew immediately because we did play around with squared paper when we designed our experiments, and then these are the quadrants, these are the squares. This is what we must control. So this is like a matrix where you have... It is. It can be this or this. this. Yeah. It's every combination of every those Every combination things. of those things. Exactly right. And this is all in a square in a square in a square, if you can see that. So it's, again, if we relate it to human thoughts, it's something about abstract thought. It's, it's also the fundamentals of a scientific method of it is, being it is. sequential, going through the permutations yeah, and changing yeah, just a variable yeah, at a yeah. time. So it does relate to, um, to the abacus, to the tools and so on, I think. But it's also a, an object of beauty. Now, um, the last... The last thing. The last thing. Now, this is a piece of art. And it comes in a box. And I have to open this. It has... This is a, a stone plinth. And I take out a perspex cube. And this perspex cube goes onto the plinth. And it contains inside engraved an incredibly fine human brain. A very small miniature brain. I can hold it in the palm of my hand. It's quite heavy. And it was made by the artist Catherine Dowson. It's a 3D laser etching of her own brain in glass. And she called it My Soul in Your Hands. And I, I love it as a work of art. I love it as a uh, a kind of symbol of the topic I'm really interested in, the human brain. Of course, this is, this is not, um, doesn't really tell you how the brain actually works. It only gives a kind of shell. It gives you all the surfaces of the brain, including the inner surfaces, the ventricles. And you show most delicate detail how there are many of the convolutions of the of the brain. Is the brain a delicate thing? Yes, the brain is a very delicate thing because um, it's semi-liquid. 
So it's really very difficult to operate on, for example. It's very difficult. You have to fixate it in order to do any post-mortem analysis. Um, so it is, the brain is very delicate and it's, of course, kept in this skull, which is a very, very quite big bones around it. It is well protected. It is our most important organ, I think. And um, we are still, of course, very ignorant very ignorant about how it works, how it comes that this brain can produce our mind and that this mind can lead to, you know, culture uh, which produces all the kind of things that we've been talking about. Interestingly, even in the cases where we have a brain disorder, there are always aspects of the brain that seem to be perfectly intact. So it's also very robust. and. Also, even in these cases where you have injuries, um, there can be compensation, there can be ways around problems that are otherwise created. So how all this happens, we, we are all still uh, working on it. And I'm still absolutely fascinated to, um, to hear how uh, neuroscience um, progresses and how we will eventually know a little bit more how come that we, we can make all these interesting objects and, and use them in, in many different ways. It's one of those things that, that the brain works without us being at all conscious of how it does it, uh, of what we're doing. And consciousness is, of course, only a very tiny proportion um, of what the brain does, of what, what's happening. But, but we think it's everything, you know, we, we're so uh, completely uh, proud, I think, of this conscious bit, you know, we, we're in control, we could do all that, but actually it's not quite like that. Peter, that's been a really fascinating selection of things and I think summed up so many interesting points that have peppered your career, but also sitting here in your house reflect something about who you are. Thank you so much for sharing oh. that. Thank you. It was a pleasure. I enjoyed it. I have to say that text message that came in, I think is from my dad, oh. who actually said, I said, oh, I'm going to interview Uta Frith today. He goes, oh, she's my hero. No. Yeah. Both sides of my family are farmers and my dad is a farmer. But during the 90s, he trained as a teacher. Mm. And so he's a teaching farmer. <gasps> And oh, I think, yeah, there's, there was a lot of sort of synergies and he then specialised in early years, worked across the county, pushing early years initiatives. How and wonderful. English, but yeah, you're his hero. Well, he, sound, he sounds like a hero. <laughs> <laughs> I think he might have sent a text message with a question. So I just wanted to see if my dad's sent in a question. <laughs> he has. My dad says. <laughs> Has the increased awareness of autism always been a beneficial thing within society? Not necessarily. I mean, yes, on, on the whole it has been beneficial, but he's quite right to, right to question it, because there has been um, a, a huge trend to, to over-diagnose it, and that clearly can't be entirely beneficial. So that's what I would say to him. This, um, is, this is the next question from my dad. <laughs> is, uh, do you feel British? Or a European ah, living in Britain? Totally European, I have to say. So obviously I don't feel British because you can hear as soon as I open my mouth that I'm not. So I can't pretend that. Uh, however, I don't feel German either. 
uh, it's actually quite difficult for me to, to speak German just suddenly, you know, I mean, it's fine after a day. But, you know, I don't feel German. I don't really want to feel German. I don't, I really want to feel European. So I'm in a bad place at the moment. I am really, really depressed and, and worried about it because I feel so European. Mm. We have, Chris, we've, we have finished the, the formal part. I was just sharing a text from my dad. <laughs> <laughs> Shall I start making lunch then? Yeah, yeah. Should we come and help you or no, I can no. stop this? So the plan is to have smoke mackerel in cream sauce with green beans. Does that sound all right? That does sound all right. Good. listening to the things that make us to see pictures of the things selected by the guest in this and all episodes please visit thethingsthatmakeus.com you can get in touch with the show via twitter at things make us and if you like what you hear please subscribe so not to miss the next installment